Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us. Now, with the so-called well-being budget being handed down, never has the need been greater, I think, for a non-woke, an unvarnished dose of common sense. I will look at the budget in that light and in detail tonight. But the sun came out of Tachuki yesterday and locals finally felt that they were winning the battle against the Murray River, which still, though, threatens to overcome homes. Victoria's Emergency Management Commissioner said a flooding emergency was still gripping Victoria. Some people have had little sleep, just sandbagging properties and installing pumps trying to stop the water from entering their homes. Pleasingly, they think they're winning the battle. And while floodwaters have begun to recede in the regional New South Wales town of Moree, a community covered in mud has been left behind. More than 390 homes and businesses were inundated in the northern New South Wales town of almost 8,000 people. Normally, one of the most productive regions in the country Maury's bumper crops have been devastated. Some families have had their homes totally inundated, but they are Australians and they're bushies and they stay positive, even though there are people in the town of Maury who've lost everything. Governments say they'll do what they can. Well, here we go again. Create a national disaster fund and these people wouldn't have to be treated like beggars asking for piddling amounts of assistance. Anyway, if you can believe the forecasters, they say normal summer conditions will return early next year. Now, I repeat what I've said each day this week. The Senate voted yesterday to refer this Lydia Thorpe to the Senate Privileges Committee, which I see as an unacceptable strategy. She and the Greens leader, Bant, should be forced to appear on the floor of the House so that everyone can publicly hear their explanations. I mentioned that the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is a Hindu. Diwali is their five-day religious festival. The main festival day is on a different date each autumn. This year it was on Monday, October 24, when Rishi Sunak was sworn in as Prime Minister. But Daniel Andrews is now being accused in Victoria of hijacking a Diwali state reception in a bid to chase votes. That'd be him, wouldn't it? It was a lavish, this is the bit, taxpayer-funded Indian religious event hosted by Daniel Andrews taxpayer funded. At least 15 Victoria Labor MPs and ALP candidates attended. Diwali is one of the most important occasions for Hindu people, not just in Victoria, but throughout the world. Daniel Andrews turned it into a public parade of Labor MPs before the Indian community. I think I mentioned to you when Serena Williams was beaten in the US Open that I could not imagine seeing how well she played that she would be retiring. She was outstanding against the brilliant Australian Ilya Tam Tomlanovich in the third round. Unfortunately, Tomlanovich couldn't go on with that form, but I thought if Serena had won that match, she would have won the title. But she's now told a conference in San Francisco that, quote, I'm not, ret I'm not retired after everything that happened to her in America. And the chances of returning to the court, she said, are very high. Well, if Serena Williams were to play in the Australian Open, should certainly bring the crowds through the turnstiles. And look, just before I go to the program proper, where we've got plenty of meat for you tonight, for those of you struggling with alcoholism or trying to find the willpower to break the habit, there is an outstanding book by Professor Ross Fitzgerald and Neil Price, 
My Last Drink, 32 Stories of Recovering Alcoholics. Research showing that Alcoholics Anonymous helps more people achieve sobriety than does therapy. Now, Alcoholics Anonymous is open to all and it's free around the globe. It boasts over 2 million members in 180 nations and 118,000 groups. That's the book published by Connor Court, My Last Drink, 32 Stories of Recovering Alcoholics. And look, if you're coming to Sydney or you're in Sydney and you want to dine somewhere special, Luke's Kitchen, as in the celebrated chef Luke Mangan, is in the Marriott Hotel, 339 Pitt Street, 339 Pitt Street, Sydney. I tell you what, you won't do better anywhere else in the world, believe me. Luke's Kitchen, 339 Pitt Street, Sydney. And now down to business. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. I often wonder what planet some of these politicians inhabit, to say nothing about some of their media disciples. The Treasurer last night said of his budget, and I quote, it delivers on the priorities of the Australian people and it repays their faith in a new government. Jim Chalmers, you've got to be kidding. He said the budget had been framed around three priorities, offering some cost of living support, building a more resilient, modern economy and beginning the task of budget repair. It is being factual, not unkind to say that he failed on all three counts. Budget repair? I don't know what his definition of repair is. The budget deficit will go from 37 billion this year to 44 billion next year and to 51 billion the year after, 2024-25. That is spending 51 billion more than you have. I talked about national net debt yesterday. That will go from 572 billion this year to 702 billion in 2024-25. That's an increase of 23%. Is this delivering on the priorities of the Australian people? The interest on our debt, according to last night's budget papers, goes from 13.6 billion to 19.4 billion in 2024-25. That's an increase of about 43% in two years. Is this repaying the voters' faith in a new government? Plenty of wokeism too. It's a well-being budget and there are well-being indicators. Well, look, if you want it to be a well-being budget, this is in serious need of a defibrillator. The Treasurer talked about hard decisions to be made, but he didn't make any. The budget was full of pessimism and a negativism at a time when optimism could have been generated by saying simply, we will cut spending and we'll do it in a responsible way. Or do we just say, well, folks, this year, we're going to collect about $607 billion, personal company tax, $260 billion, GST, $82 billion, tax on your super, $12 billion, company tax, $127 billion. But we're going to spend $650 billion, $43 billion more than we have in the kitty. Now, if a family ran its household like this, they'd be out the door with no one to help them. Jim Chalmers is good on the rhetoric, quote, in the world we're in, with growing social need and tightening fiscal constraints, there's a call for all of us to develop more creative solutions, unquote. Well, dead right. But where are the tightening fiscal constraints, fiscal at spending, when you're spending $43 billion more than you get in? And then what about the election promises? What was that Labor message before the election? Everything's going up except your wages. And quote, only Labor has a plan to get wages moving, unquote. Did you notice as Dr Chalmers was delivering his budget speech, there wasn't a smile on a single face behind him? 
populist promises made at the election to win votes have been blown up. Well, there will be cheaper childcare down the track, but if you're piling debt on debt, should someone on $530,000 be getting any sort of taxpayer-funded childcare? The so-called marquee election commitment will cost $4.7 billion over four years. Should the taxpayer be paying for paid parental leave for families earning $350,000 when we're swimming in debt? But the government boasts about these extravagances. Yes, trimming the cost of medicines under the PBS, well done. Adding more fee-free TAFE places, well done, we need the skills. But a Labor government stands in the national parliament and tells the Australian worker that inflation outpaced wages by 3.5 percentage points last financial year and the worker will see real earnings slip another two percentage points this year. So I suppose Labor have kept their promise that only Labor has a plan to get wages moving. They just didn't tell us they'd be moving backwards. And then there are the electricity costs and the gas costs. What has Dr Chalmers got to say about all of that? Well, the cheerful campaign promise to cut the household power bills is in disarray. The man who made the promise, along with his leader, stood in the parliament last night and forecast a whopping 20% rise in electricity prices this year and 30% the following year. Gas prices up 20% in both years. No apology, just excuses. Not a word from anyone in the Labor Party or the Labor government about the real issue. At some point, as I warned last night, this Labor government is going to have to assess its green ambitions. This economy is being propped up by the resource industry. The Albanese government, egged on by the crossbenchers and some in the opposition, want to demonise fossil fuels. I say it again. The green ambitions of these people are unachievable, but worse, unaffordable. When the incompetent Energy Minister Bowen said on Monday that he was embracing, quote, the biggest economic transformation our country has seen since the war, he was right. He is destroying our economy. 82% of electricity to be produced by zero emissions technologies by 2030. That will mean, he said on Monday, putting 60 million solar panels on roofs between now and 2030, eight years time. That's as many as have gone up in the last 10 years. And then 40 wind turbines a month, one a day. We demonise our fossil fuel resources, but export them so that other countries can be energy rich. I made that point last night. These resource golden eggs have been laid by coal and oil and gas for years and have made our nation wealthy because we've got more of them than the rest of the world. Resource exports this financial year, 450 billion. Coal, 120 billion. Have a look at these debt and deficit figures and the interest we're paying on debt. And how do we handle this double whammy with the impossible cost of shifting to renewables and the unconscionable loss of the revenue from fossil fuels? Yet this budget, the Treasurer tells us, delivers, quote, on the priorities of the Australian people. Well, Jim Chalmers, they might have been the priorities of the 32% who voted for you, but they're not mine and they're not the priorities of millions of others. The doom and gloom you preached last night can be alleviated almost entirely by abandoning your government's absurd energy policy. Millions of Australians aren't prepared to go over the economic cliff with you and your ideological zealots.
I made the point yesterday, and I'll continue to make it, that our economy is reaching a tipping point with this campaign against fossil fuels. I've referred to the golden eggs being laid by coal, oil and gas. Total resource exports this year, 450 billion. The demonised coal export revenue, 120 billion. They are to be removed, presumably, by 2030. Where does replacement revenue come from? And where is the debt likely to finish up? You've got the Treasurer today at the National Press Club blaming Russia for the energy price increase and hence the highest inflation in 32 years. We could have been quarantined from all of this if we had taken advantage of our own resources. I've spoken over and over again since this green energy nonsense took root about the writing of a national economic suicide note. Are the final paragraphs in that note now being written? We need a dose of common sense here, a truckload of it. Let's go to Senator Matt Canavan. Matt, thank you as always for your time. Look, these budget figures are dreadful and the government seems to have no answers. The work is being dudded, inflation outpacing wages by three and a half percentage points last financial year, another two percentage points this year. I suppose Labor have kept their promise to keep wages moving. They just didn't tell us they'd be moving backwards, Matt. <laughs> well, that's right, Alan. You could say the same thing about power prices as well. They're just yep. going in the opposite direction. And, and there is an unspoken irony here at the centre of this budget, and that is that the, the, the savings or the improvements we see in the budget bottom line that the Labor Party like to trumpet are actually only there thanks to our booming resources industries that the Labor Party actually wants to shut down. I mean, they've been telling us uh, that we've got a transition uh, not gender transition, but to indeed transition our industries uh, to, to renewables, to solar and wind, and they want to shut down our coal and gas and, and other mining industries. And they're the very things that are, are allowing us to afford blowouts in like the NDIS and the disability insurance scheme and other welfare programs. If we don't have, as you say, these golden eggs, uh, we're not going to be able to afford good things in this nation anymore. We will not be a lucky country uh, anymore. And at the heart here, the reason... The reason your power bills are going up, the reason interest rates are going up, uh, the reason we've got shortages everywhere is not because Vladimir Putin invaded Correct. Ukraine. It's because Correct. Western countries signed up to this net zero madness in Glasgow. Mm. This has a lot more to do with Greta Thunberg than it does with Vladimir Putin. Absolutely. Look, I'm not here to piddle in your pocket because everyone who watches this program knows what common sense you articulate. But what they are saying today, where is the opposition? Because the opposition, I mean, Scott Morrison raced off to Glasgow. The opposition seemed to be demonising fossil fuels as much as the government. Where does the poor punter out there finish up? Well, I don't disagree with that analysis, uh, uh, Alan, and uh, I will continue to say to my parties I did this week that if we are serious about uh, taking a taking cost of living relief to the next election, we have to drop net zero. Uh, we can't just complain about the problem. Uh, and there is a clear problem here with uh, people's power bills now looking to go up by over $1,000 mm. next year. That's in this budget. Un un unlike what Jim Chalmers says, what's actually in the budget is a more than $1,000 increase in your energy bills, yep. uh, potentially more to come as well. And, and we're sure, we can run around and say that's terrible, but if the Liberal and National Parties have the same policies as yes. Labor when it comes to energy, how can we promise people that there'll be a different energy price outcome? We have to have different policies from this mess to fix up 
this absolute Correct. disaster. We're a Correct. country blessed with some of the world's greatest resources, energy resources, mm. is uh, in energy poverty. Uh, the way to do that is to unlock those resources, yep. to use them. And we have to drop our commitment to net zero to mm. do that. Uh, we cannot let China continue to flout mm. these international agreements, steal all our jobs. We should be putting Australians first. See, we've just had our biggest ever resources and energy exports of over $420 billion. But then they reach for the lame excuse offered by Bowen and Co that, oh, the old coal-fired power stations are unreliable. I mean, you've made the point that if coal is the problem, which could lead to the prospect of blackouts down the track, shouldn't the lights be going out in Japan, Korea, India and Vietnam who are relying on our coal and they've invested in new coal-fired power stations. Aren't we reaching the tipping point where the Albanese government is going to have to accept that its green ambitions and climate change policies are unachievable? Well, we are. It's just a matter of uh, how many knocks through the school yeah. of hard knocks uh, we'll have to take before uh, some of the fools here in Canberra wake up to themselves. Uh, you're absolutely right that... Uh, uh, it's not coal-fired power stations that are unreliable. It is old coal-fired power stations like that old are cars. unreliable. Yeah. Old cars, yeah. old machines, old, <laughs> old fridges machines. tend yep. to sometimes break down. Yep. And you, you, you every need, need again, need now and again, need to update and refresh machines. But our problem, and we were guilty of this as a government, that over the past 10 years, uh, we've lost about four gigawatts of coal-fired power stations. That has been replaced by only one gigawatts of primarily gas, uh, reliable, dispatchable power. And so that three gigawatt shortage is why you're paying more for your power bills. This is not complicated. If you reduce the supply of something, in this case, reliable power, the price of that thing goes up. And now it, what we're facing in the next 10 years is the real big green chickens coming home to roost. We're facing eight gigawatts That's so it. far of coal-fired power, double what, it, what, it ca what it. came out in the last decade. And we have no plan from this government no. and, as you said, the former government, to replace that reliable power. Do you think We've got to get on with that straight away. We should be refurbishing the old ones and building new coal-fired power Definitely. stations too. Do you think some are starting to wake up now? You and I spoke a couple of months ago about... News Limited, The Australian, all their newspapers, they were as woke as everybody else. They were into the net zero camp uh, overwhelmingly. They editorialised it. They did front page covers of it all. But an editorial in today's Australian now refers to what you and I have been saying for years. We would need 60 million mm. solar panels on roofs between now and 2030, as much as we've done in the past 10 years. And we need 40 wind turbines a month, more than a wind turbine a day. Uh, what do you say to that? Exactly, yep. Well, I think people are waking up. They're also waking up because of what's going on in Europe. And this is not just an energy crisis. Uh, this won't just play out as, as people uh, having to pay more for their power bills, as, as hard as that will be. What will happen if we do uh, allow this energy crisis to build is that not long after that, we'll have a fiscal crisis. Because what's happened in the UK uh, is not... Uh, is not because of tax cuts that Liz Trust proposed. The bigger cost in her mini-budget the other week Energy subsidies. Uh, was yep. the subsidy mm. of power bills, and mm. that was because of this net-zero madness. Yep. That was going to bankrupt the UK, and so the new chancellors come in and said, well, we're not subsidising bills after April next year. That's calmed the bond markets for a while, but I don't know how they're going to still have a democracy in a country where and expect people to pay $10,000 Australian a year in the UK after April for their power bills, that's not going to really work. Mm. So something is going to break. That's what we're facing if we keep going Definitely. down this path. And, and keep in mind that we're talking about the country here, the UK, that has not, it's the safest country in the world, not defaulted since the 1300s. Uh, they've lived through Napoleon, the Kaiser, Hitler, or they all couldn't destroy 
the, the, the good name and quality uh, and credit of the UK bond market. But where those dictators failed, Greta Thunberg is, looks like she's going to succeed. Mm. And of course, what we do, we've said over and over again, but let's repeat it. Uh, it won't matter what we do. Governments in China and India are going full steam ahead with coal. And then we import the solar panels and wind turbines from China, and that produced with coal as a major import, make China rich, and we're supposed to be arguing with them. I mean, Australian leadership, where is it? I mean, you've got Snowy 2.0. I mean, you're kidding me, aren't you? You're kidding me. I mean, the exploratory work hasn't even started on Snowy 2.0. Well, Ma Malcolm Turnbull, Malcolm oh. Turnbull promised that Snowy Hydro would only cost a couple of billion dollars and it would be built in four years. He made that promise in 2017. We're already past that time, of course, and we're still years away, probably another six years by the look of it, away from Snowy 2 even turning on. Uh, the problem we've got here, Alan, I'm not, I'm not totally against some of these projects. I'm not totally against some investment in solar and wind. The issue we've got is we've got this un unhealthy obsession with wanting to put all our eggs in one basket. Yeah. Uh, every modern industrial economy needs a variety of energy sources to succeed uh, and be reliable. Uh, you need that base load yes. dispatchable energy yes. that can come from coal or gas or proper hydro, not pumped hydro. That sort of stuff needs to be in the system. And yes, you can supplement that yep. with some solar and wind, uh, with gas that, that comes on and off every now and again. That's, that's fine. But we seem to have this ridiculous uh, conversation this country that it's got to be either this one or that one. And when we, that's when we get into trouble, uh, when we try and, as I say, put all those eggs in one basket. Well, as simple as I've been saying, right Matt, I mean, it just, has to be, it. it just has to be available, affordable and reliable. And renewable doesn't mean exactly. any it's of Exactly, it's not them. hard. Hey, Daniel Andrews is going to privatise Victoria's electricity market. Does he rob union-backed superannuation funds? Hey? Yeah, well, I, I, I think... You know, Dan Andrews here is the, at the apogee of this. But can I just make a comment about this? Dan Andrews has come to say that he wants 95% of Victoria's electricity from renewables in just over 10 years. This is a crazy announcement, we all know. But one of the reasons he does this is because we've entered, or the Victorian Liberals down there have entered into an uh, unwinnable bidding war on green energy uh, with it. Dan Andrews. A few months ago, the Victorian Liberal Party decided to try and say, we'll cut emissions by more. Uh, than Victorian mm. Labor than by Dan Andrews. And of course, what he's just turned around and done and said, no, no, I'll, 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 I'll bid you up. I'll, I'll, I'll see your, I'll, I'll see your, uh, your uh, hand? Uh, um, royal flush and yeah. I'll, 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 I'll double down. And, and then we're left with, they're not going to, the Victorian Liberals won't win the Green voters then, uh, but we've just bankrupted uh, the great state of Victoria. And this is just so sad because Victoria was always the industrial heartland of mm. our nation. It's where our manufacturing industry was the strongest. And I just, I just, I, I'm just depressed to see what was once a great Absolutely. manufacturing industry being flushed yeah. down the it's drain everywhere. here. It's uh, everywhere. With very little consideration it's from the It's everywhere. It's representing these workers. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. Look, I hope we don't run out of time here, but I just want to ask you, what do we make of this determination by the Albanese government to tax farmers on the methane produced by, well, some animals, only some. Uh, you've cited a report by the Food and Agriculture Organisation, FAO, that the average mm. kilogram kilogram of live weight beef produced in Uruguay produced 33 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalent gases. So one kilogram of live weight beef, 33 kilograms of carbon dioxide gases. Is the farmer going to be taxed? Well, Alan, this is where we get, we get into this trouble here uh, because we sign up to vague commitments that sound good on paper when we haven't done the sums. 
And I would imagine if you you could get Chris Bowen on your program, I doubt he would even know how much methane a a cow emits every year. And Mm. as you point out those figures there, that each kilogram uh, of live weight beef that's produced is about 30-odd kilograms of carbon equivalent gases. That that means that on your plate, the steak on your plate, you're going to give about half the carcass into edible products. So it's about 60 kilograms per kilogram of, of beef you buy in the shops. Now, that... That means if at a carbon price, because all these pills, you know, they've got these magic beans out and they're going to feed the the cattle to stop them um, emitting methane. That costs money. And the carbon price generally to reduce emissions is to net zero is looked at about $200 a tonne. That's 20 cents a kilogram. So if you've got, if you're, if you're, if you're one kilogram of, uh, of rib fillet for your roast on the weekend for your family, if that's, if that's if that's um, if that's producing 60 kilograms of carbon dioxide of gases, and it costs the farmer 20 cents to reduce that, that's an extra 12 dollars a kilo. Yeah, extra. And so let's say it's mint. If it's mint for your spaghetti bolognese, extra. extra. You just doubled the price of your spaghetti bolognese. Mm. Uh, and people can't afford this. They can't no. afford the power bills, the interest rates, and now we're going to make their food more expensive again in a land that produces so much food. We should be sustainable. Uh, Matt, I could talk to you for an hour. We've got to get you back. I think this is a big issue, this methane emissions thing. And that is also made by cattle. I mean, what about feral pigs? Don't start me. Uh, you go off. You've got work to do down there in Canberra. <laughs> well, I support them being, I support them being eradicated. Yeah, that's that's right, fine. I agree. Let's get rid of them. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Kill two birds with one and, stone. And, and then the budget, and then the budget refused to provide the money to harvest water. Hello. Come on. Mm. Plenty yeah, to talk. Plenty one. to talk about. Catch up with you again soon, Matt. There he is. That's our dose of common sense, isn't he a talent? Senator Matt Canavan. Let me just add a few further snapshots on this budget because what it does and what it doesn't do affect us all. The Treasurer, Dr Chalmers, is no rookie. He's been in Parliament since 2013. He was Chief of Staff to Treasurer Wayne Swan during the Rudd era. That may not recommend him. If he oversaw mistakes then, may he not walk down the same road now? It is true that he faces a very tough situation. There is a mountain of debt. But as I said last night, when he was in opposition and they were throwing money around in response to coronavirus, that's the government at the time, he was the shadow treasurer. He waved the spending through. Today, as a direct consequence of a lot of that spending, we learn that inflation is now at a 32-year high. But can you believe that the treasurer today laid the blame at the feet of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin? and his illegal invasion of Ukraine, which Dr. Chalmers said had driven global energy prices to record levels since February. I suppose there's none so blind as those who cannot see. Dr. Chalmers, we would be quarantined from all of those world problems if we bothered to use our own resources of raw materials. Instead, interest rates are now at their highest level in seven years. Electricity prices will rise by over 50%, plus, that is, 50% plus in the next two years. Gas prices will rise at a similar rate. This puts upward pressure on food prices because energy costs feed into everything. Yes, we've got a housing affordability problem, which has made the Australian dream unattainable for millions. But I don't think people struggling to get into their first home should draw too much comfort from Treasurer Chalmers and the proposal to spend billions of taxpayers' money building a million homes by 2030, with the assistance of investors, he says, the states and local councils. This is not the role of government building homes. The private sector could do all of this if you got rid of the red tape and the regulation. There are developers known to me right now who are shovel ready, 
got hamstrung at every turn by bureaucracy. And anyway, how would a million homes address housing affordability when we start bringing in 195,000 migrants every year? Too few homes, too many people wanting them, the price goes up. If Labor's gonna build a million homes by 2030 and bring in about 1.95 million migrants by then or in 10 years, how the hell will those who can't afford a home today be able to afford one tomorrow? The policy of mass immigration without proper planning is exactly why house prices have doubled relative to income in the last 20 years. It's about as un-Australian as you can get. I've already spoken about the suicidal energy policies of the Albanese's government. Last night, there were green energy commitments everywhere. Treasurer Chalmers talked about the green energy transition and that the government will pursue cleaner, cheaper and more reliable energy. This, this lot are an absolute joke. I'm, I kid you not. Look, we already have cleaner, cheaper, whatever you want, reliable energy. They're called fossil fuels. But they're getting rid of them because we understand the economic imperative of acting on climate change. That's right, send us broke along the way. But the budget said we'll spend $20 billion, $20,000 million of borrowed money on an energy transition fund. $20,000 million while net debt is at its highest level in 70 years. And the only reason debt has shrunk slightly is because of the mining boom and the international demand for our resources. Jim Chalmers started his budget speech with a welcome to country and a commitment to the indigenous voice in parliament. That'll do nothing to help our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, but may well drive them from the rest of us. Is this the Labor Party of the 21st century, which ignores coal-fired power and nuclear energy, which fails to put working class Australians first by reducing immigration, which fails on the most fundamental issues of budget reform. Start by cutting the size of the Canberra bureaucracy, 247,600 Commonwealth public servants, 247,600, a salary bill of $23.1 billion, paying for a raft of unthinking, non-reading, intellectual government pygmies who got us into this mess in the first place. Let's go to London and David Maddox, the political editor of Express Online. You can read him, express.co.uk. No one has better insights into the Conservative Party than David Maddox, but even he would not have imagined what's happened in the last several days. As I pointed out yesterday, Rishi Sunak is the new Prime Minister of the UK, a practising Hindu, named as the UK's next leader on Diwali, the festival celebrated by millions of Hindus across the world. He is the UK's first Prime Minister of Colour. He's only 42. He was born in Southampton to parents of Punjabi Indian descent who migrated from East Africa in the 1960s. He is splendidly credentialed with degrees from Oxford and Stanford universities. Does that mean he's politically credentialed? That's to be tested. As I said last night, he and his wife, the daughter of an Indian billionaire businessman, are reportedly the 222nd richest people in Britain with a combined fortune of 730 million pounds, more than that of King Charles. Rishi Sunak was elected to the House of Commons only seven years ago, succeeding a former leader, William Haig. William Haig has written today, and I quote, I know Rishi Sunak well, having known everyone at the top of politics in the past few decades, 
I struggle to recall anyone with stronger attributes of intelligence, thoughtfulness, and self-discipline. William Hague said he is hugely conscious of the need to combine economic competence with compassion. Any occupant of 10 Downing Street, he writes, will make some mistakes. We all would. But he'll not make the mistake of failing to explain reality to the country. Says William Hague, he'll not want for dedication and diligence. He says suddenly the Conservative Party has a chance of pulling itself together. Let's go to David. David, lovely to have you again. That is William Hague, who was the previous representative of Rishi Sunak's constituency of Richmond in Yorkshire. What do you make of William Hague's assessment of the new Prime Minister? I think uh, I think it's pretty much on the money. Uh, I've known Rishi since 2016. I met him on the day that he, uh, in fact, an hour after this had happened, but on the day that he told David Cameron to uh, that he wouldn't be uh, supporting him on the referendum and that he would support Leave. And I, I've always, uh, from my experience, I've always held him as a man of integrity as well, because basically he postponed his kind of career as a politician uh, to support the, the Leave side in Brexit. So he's a very personable individual. He's very intelligent. He's very good at explaining his position. Uh, the issue behind him, I'm afraid, though, is is more what's gone on, whether this is essentially a coup and the people using it are behind him to, uh, to as a coup to take over the Conservative Party. Um, I think he's answered some of those questions, actually, with his cabinet reshuffle, which I think we're going to get on to. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's going to be difficulties ahead. This isn't going yeah, to be no doubt about that. But that's the same. I mean, Liz Truss went at things like a bull at a gate, the Bank of England and the market virtually stepped in. Is there now a prevailing view that the Conservative Party can function as a responsible institution under Rishi Sunak? Yes, I think it will restore its credibility. Uh, as, and I think credibility is an important word when you're talking about Rishi Sunak. You may uh, not like, he's on the wet side of the party, he's a bit on the left side of the Conservative Party, uh, but you can't doubt his credibility. He is definitely going to appear to be the adult in the room after the last 50 days we've just been through, uh, which have been extraordinary. And uh, I mean, completely catastrophic. I mean, we've uh, the Conservative Party has been punished in the polls immensely mm. for what's going on. Mm. And uh, you know, one yeah. poll I think I wrote that would leave them with one MP. So yeah. it's uh, there's a lot of uh, trust to be restored, and, and maybe Rishi's the man to do it. Yeah, he's talked like, about a cabinet of all the talents uh, from this far away. I think he seems to have done that. Dominic Raab, Deputy PM, Jeremy Hunt stays as Chancellor. He's kept Suella Braverman as Home Secretary. James Cleverly stays as Foreign Secretary. Uh, he's, ben he's Wallace. Brought, he brought her back. Yeah. 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 He brought Suella back. Suella, that's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, Michael Gove is back yeah. as the levelling up Secretary. These are smart people. Why do you think he accepted Jacob Rees-Mogg's resignation prior to the Prime Minister announcing his team? So I think he was going to sack Jacob. Uh, he and Jacob had strongly disagreed on uh, a number of issues, most mostly actually on taking advantage of Brexit. Jacob had briefed heavily against him, uh, which is unusual for Jacob, actually. He doesn't normally do the briefing, but uh, he briefed heavily against him because he was uh, accused Rishi 
uh, of really watering down the benefits of Brexit as Chancellor and being a major roadblock for reform that's needed, uh, you know, post leaving the EU. There's a lot of big disagreements there. Right, right. Jacob was very much a man of uh, of Boris Johnson as well. Yeah. And uh, if you look at the, the Boris Johnsonites, are all out mm. now. And uh, it's uh, but but this reshuffle's very interesting. He has kept a lot of stability in there. Yeah. He's kept some of trusses, a lot of trusses appointments in and, there. And a lot and, of talent. Yes, as you said, a lot of talent. Did yeah. Boris Johnson have more than a hundred yeah. backers? Yes, he had 110. He needed 102, he had 110. I've had that confirmed. I personally haven't seen the list, but I've had it confirmed from people uh, who have seen the list, and uh, he had enough. Uh, essentially, he backed out because he couldn't be bothered to do it. And but, but just the, on that, okay. Repercussions just on that, David, I mean, he met with Rishi Sunak for two and a half hours last Saturday, trying to do a deal, and you, mm. as you wrote, it's a standoff. But surely, if this Privileges Committee is going to investigate Boris over party gate, and if he were found to be in some sort of breach and he was then the new Prime Minister, the chaos would have started again. Do you think the Privileges Committee hanging over his head forced him out? No, I don't, actually. I think it was a realisation that he could not control the parliamentary party. Right. And um, all the wets, all the ones on the left had rallied around Rishi anyway. But I think the key one is getting back to Suella Braverman, who... Uh, had to resign a week ago as Home Secretary, he's back now. And Suella came out on Sunday uh, against the advice of a lot of people on the right to support Rishi. And, um, you know, she told friends that basically we couldn't go through the kind of circus again, the chaos again, and she was doing it really for stability and for yeah, unity. Yeah. And, of course, she's now she, been rewarded. Yeah, and, she's, and she's, she's got a future. She's very able, Suella Braverman. What was the reaction of, really senior, good, conserv really what was the reaction of senior Conservatives who'd gone out on a limb to support Boris and then he pulled the plug? I mean, you wrote that some <laughs> of his supporters were already posting on social media the case for his return and none of them had been warned that he decided to pull the plug. Are you saying that a senior MP who was not part of the campaign had seen that Boris list and, as you say, he had 110 names? Yes, I mean, they're furious. I, mean, I, can't, I can't repeat a lot of the language that they used to me on, on your show, but they are livid. I mean, I think this is the end of Boris Johnson. The, a lot of people have put their trust in him. There was, uh, in that piece I wrote, there was one MP, uh, Joy Morrissey, who was still literally on the phone trying to persuade a colleague to support Boris uh, uh, when when the news came out. And, you know, all these people look, look daft. And, mm. and it's not really their fault. All they did was show loyalty. Uh, I mean, the, the big thing is, though, that Boris stopped a candidate of the right from emerging. There could have been it's somebody like Suella Braverman or Kemi Badenoch could have emerged as a candidate of the right. He killed off that opportunity and essentially ensured a uh, coronation for Rishi Sunak, which, of course, has made members of the Conservative, ordinary members of the Conservative Party, absolutely livid. One, one Tory MP told, described Sunak to you as a plutocrat with no principles at all. A plutocrat mm. is a person whose power derives from their wealth. Is that a prevailing view? Mm. It is amongst a lot of uh, a lot of his colleagues and... Uh, 
there's uh, there, there, there are a lot of worries that this is a, a capture of the party by the left, but we're going to see more of a kind of net zero stuff, not less of it. We're going to see oh. uh, a, a less of an attack on the kind of cultural war stuff. We're going to see, uh, you know, a step back from reforming things like the BBC. We're not going to see full speed ahead on Brexit. Uh, and, and uh, you know, essentially the kind of wealthy elites are in charge again, mm. see, uh, which is, of course, the reverse of what we'd all hope for. Absolutely. See, uh, there is a view nonetheless, isn't there, David, amongst many, that if someone's made a quid and then goes into politics, they'll automatically be successful. We had this here with Malcolm Turnbull, and he was a catastrophic political failure. Mm. Can Rishi Sunak be across all the arms of government when he's only been there for seven years? I think he can. I mean, he's, he was a, a pretty good chancellor. He was a, a pretty steady chancellor uh, uh, for a pretty disastrous period in our history in, in terms of the lockdown and the pandemic. Yeah. I think he, he can. I mean, if you can deal with the Treasury, then you can deal with government. That's right. uh, It's essentially the engine and of government. And two female... Uh, uh, and as I say, he's an intelligent man, so yeah. it's not... No, no doubt about that. Just one thing. Two female former Prime Ministers on the back bench. Are we to believe that Theresa May and Liz Truss... <laughs> stay there? Are they not amongst the most able within the Conservative Party? Or do they get a diplomatic post or something? I think they'll stay there. Uh, Theresa May in particular has uh, doggedly stayed there. She's, uh, she's quite keen to be a, a rather annoying backbencher, which uh, <laughs> uh, very much in the kind of mould of Ted Heath in the 1970s, yeah, if you remember right. that far back. But Liz Truss, I mean, poor, poor Liz Truss, you know, if, I mean, she didn't make it 50 days. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> only one other prime minister has had a shorter tenure. It was yeah, George Wellington Canning and he died. Had 27 days. Yeah, George Canning died. I mean, no one could yeah, be as, exactly. No one could be as bad as Ted Heath, I've got yeah. to tell you. Now, listen, Nostradamus, you got to go. But no. the next election, yes or no, the next election's not until 2025. There are 650 seats in the House of Commons, 327 to form a government. Labor would have to win 131 seats. Can Rishi Sunak win government from where you sit and see things today? Yes, no? Uh, it's a tall order. Well, yes, he can, but it's a tall order. <laughs> okay. uh, the reason he can is because he's up against the Keir Starmer, the dullest and least charismatic man in politics with Labour, with very little ideas. So um, this is... This is very much fair for the winner. Right, all right, Nostradamus. Twenty twenty four, by the way. That's the way it's going to be. All right, champion. <laughs> okay, talk to you next week. There he is. Fascinating stuff, isn't it? I mean, if it wasn't for all that, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. So it's wonderful stuff. New Prime Minister of Great Britain, and that is uh, the man who knows the Conservative Party inside out, David Maddox. Talk to you next week, David. Always lovely to share your insights. You can read David at express.co.uk. Express.co.uk. Look, back to this budget and a few more insights I'd like to share because, as I've already said, we were told emphatically by the Treasurer that this budget, quote, delivers on the priorities of, Australian, of the Australian people. Now, is that so? I wonder if anyone in the pub tonight thinks it's a priority to spend $43 billion more than you get in. Would people in Struggle Street be cheering to know that out of the $650 billion of revenue this year, in the next four years, approximately $3 trillion 
in revenue, three trillion in revenue, the government in four years will save 28.5 billion. 28.5 billion. You may as well not bother. Far from improving the bottom line, these economic wizards have worsened it. Swallow this. The gap between future spending and tax receipts across the next 10 years runs at approximately, the gap, 50 billion every year for 10 years. And these people are running the show. It surely proves that the political talent pool is very shallow. A $50 billion shortfall every year. Is this delivering on the priorities of the Australian people? Jim Chalmers has been softening up the electorate for weeks with his pessimistic predictions. Last night it was a catalogue of problems, but there were no solutions. All the bloke at the pub wants to know is, what is happening to his wages? Given the election promise that only Labor has a plan to get wages moving. As I said earlier, they didn't tell us that meant moving backwards. The Health Minister Mark Butler, in talking about $135 billion for health and aged care this year, 135,000 million, said he made no excuses for putting a priority on better services as the Health Minister. Well, perhaps the Health Minister might explain why the government's regulator, the Professional Services Review, examines only about 100 cases every 12 months of fraud and inappropriate billing, which is 0.07% of the 150,000 medical professionals the regulator is supposed to be monitoring. What does the health minister mean when he talks about a priority on better services? Who's managing our money? However, whether it's related to rorting or not, I don't know, but I think it's a bit rich that the Medicare rebate for doctors who bulk bill has been left where it is at $38. I'm not too sure how many of us would perform such a specialist function for $38. But credit to the government, there is a massive shortage of rural doctors. They'll now be paid up to $10,500 a year more via a $74.1 million incentive program that forms the centrepiece of Labor's spending commitments on rural health. Now, this is money well spent. Part of a $185 million rural workforce package designed to attract support and retain more doctors and allied health professionals in regional and rural communities. Basically, encouraging more doctors to work in the bush and those who are already there to stay. But it's not just the bush, but the nation which must feel betrayed that billions of dollars promised by the Morrison government for regional dam construction has been withdrawn. You've heard me for years about harvesting water. Look what's happened this year, and the flood water flows out to the sea. The $5.4 billion to build the Hell's Gate Dam in North Queensland, money withdrawn. Bob Catter will be filthy. Money previously earmarked to build the Dungowan Dam near Tamworth and to raise the dam wall of the Wyangala Dam about 320 kilometres west of Sydney, that money has been deferred. The $600 million commitment to help the Queensland government rebuild the problem-plagued Paradise Dam near Bundaberg, that money remains. But after that, next to nothing. The Razor Gang, this Katie Gallagher from the ACT, what the hell would she know about harvesting water? But $4.6 billion has been cut from the National Water Grid Fund over 12 years. Now, common sense would tell you that if we spent money harvesting water, 
We could grow our agricultural output. And at the end of the day, we could be, we're capable of feeding Asia. If I was drafting a budget, the cost of harvesting water would be right at the top of my, well, at the spend list. Spending, it's spending, which ensures economic growth and productivity. The two things we desperately need. But the big issue, I must say, not of the government's making, is the NDIS. There's a massive collision now looming between the claims of the disability sector and the taxpayers' capacity to pay. The scheme is projected to grow by almost 14% a year for the next decade, more than double the rate of spending in other big government programs like defence, aged care and medical benefits. Within four years, the NDIS is forecast to be costing the taxpayer over $51 billion. And the number of participants and the average cost per participant continue to rise, 51 billion. When the costs of Medicare at the same time are forecast to be 36 billion, aged care 25 billion. These are massive amounts of money. The Treasurer said in his budget speech, we choose dignity for Australians with disability. That is commendable and unarguable. But that doesn't mean to say that the rorting in Medicare may not exist in the NDIS. One of the problems is the very vague and subjective notion of the definition of disability. Quote, the impairment of body or function, a limitation in activities or a restriction in participation when interacting with their environment. Unquote. See, who decides? These are subjective criteria. The genuinely disabled suffering total or partial loss of their bodily or mental functions deserve our every support. But Bill Shorten, the NDIS minister, is right to establish a fraud task force. And his language is right when he says it will, quote, help defend the scheme from crooks and help deliver our pledge to crack down on NDIS fraudsters. Is this the world we live in? Even Aboriginal leaders are saying there are people seeking benefits under identifiable Aboriginal schemes who aren't Aboriginal. I think Bill Shorten is on top of this issue, especially his focus on getting people on the NDIS out of hospitals and getting rid of the crooks. But these are big figures. By 2030, the number of people on the NDIS is projected to rise to 830,000. And the costs growing, as I said, by almost 14% a year for the next decade. It is the necessary price we pay to provide as best we can dignity to all Australians. In summary, the budget, a curate's egg, some good, mostly crook. Well, before we go, there'd be many who would rightfully argue that Meghan Markle has caused more damage and hurt to the British royal family than anyone else in recent times. She claims that title by a country mile. She is the modern day Wallace Simpson. Last week, Variety magazine released an interview with Meghan Markle on, quote, grieving Queen Elizabeth II's death. According to Richard Eden, the Daily Mail's diary editor, she showed absolutely no remorse for the anguish she must surely have created for the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh during their final years. Eden said Meghan Markle should have apologised in the interview for the, quote, hard times, unquote, she and her husband, Prince Harry, visited upon the Queen and Prince Philip via, quote, their interviews about and insults towards the royal family, unquote. Well, needless to say, Meghan Markle didn't apologise. Instead, she politicised the legacy of the late Queen, saying, quote, what's so beautiful is to look at the legacy 
that his grandmother was able to leave on so many fronts, certainly in terms of female leadership. She's the most shining example of what that looks like, unquote. Now, forget the tabloid language. What does she mean, female leadership? What on earth does the late Queen's gender have to do with her remarkable leadership, legacy and service to Britain and the wider Commonwealth? How would you know? In the Meghan Markle thought bubble, it's invariably about her. She spent a significant part of the interview talking about the Me Too movement that's demonised men right across the world. And of course, she went on about her acting career and her future in Hollywood. Does either exist? She mourned the fact that she, quote, didn't grow up pretty. Well, she got that right. There's nothing pretty about always playing the victim. Meghan Markle is all about sexism, racism, and every other ism parroted around by woke activists who live in multi-million dollar mansions in gated communities. This is not what the royal family is supposed to be about. As the Queen demonstrated throughout a remarkable life, being a royal for her was about service and humility and being above politics and so-called progressive political ideologies. I think that word should be regressive, but about respect for tradition and the institutions that made Britain the once most powerful nation in the world. But none of that for Miss Markle, not that she would know anything about British institutions and traditions anyway, let alone royal tradition. Of course, she won't apologise for the trouble both she and her husband visited upon Harry's grandparents. She has so little self-awareness, she seems incapable of thinking of anyone but herself. I'm sure I share the sentiments of many when I say I wish she'd keep her head down and stick to her vanity endorsements from woke celebrities. It is the royal family she seems to hate. The irony is she would command no attention at all if she hadn't married into it. Far from King Charles pulling them both into line, he'd be best served by stripping them of their titles. On that note, I bid you farewell for the night. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.